Welcome to On Leading. I am Shauna Steffen, and I am happy to get to share my interview with Janine Benyus today. Janine Benyus is the visionary voice of biomimicry, which she first introduced to the world in her book on the topic in 1997. Biomimicry is learning from and emulating nature to create more sustainable designs. For the positive impact of her sustainable design work and teaching others how to do the same, Janine has received widespread acclaim that includes a National Design Mind Award and international United Nations recognition as a champion of the earth. Janine has a way of transporting us with her sense of wonder about the genius and magic of the natural world and what's possible when we relate to nature as our mentor. In this interview, she offers an evolutionary definition of success and inspires a shift in how we view and value nature to get there. She also models how to listen deeply to the oldest organisms on Earth. With invigorating insight, Janine guides us in the restorative leadership practice of being highly intentional with our life choices as designers of the future of life itself. Janine, what compels you to do the work that you do? You know, the core compulsion, if you will, has always been to to have people fall in love with the natural world of which they are a part. Uh, And um, that, I think that happens through being taught to see in new ways. And so my work has always been about say about holding something nature in my the palms of my hand and coming up to someone and saying, you know, fuck, you know, isn't this amazing? You know, and reminding someone of of the absolute um, magic and genius that we that we're embedded in. And uh, so all my books were about that. All my books were about like, look at this. Can you can you believe how amazing this is? Um, and then and I, it for many years it was about affection, you know, engendering affection for the natural world. With biomimicry, it really shifted um, from an engendering affection to engendering admiration and respect for the natural world. And I realized how, what an important and, and vital emotion respect is. Seeing nature as a mentor uh, is very different than writing a check for conservation because you pity nature or you're guilty about nature. Mm-hmm. You know, those, those emotions, pity and guilt, I think are, I don't think they're very, very powerful. Mm-hmm. I think respect is a hugely powerful emotion. So my, I'm compelled to do my work because I think it ultimately transforms our relationship to the natural world to one of respect. We see nature as teacher, as mentor. And I honestly think that that can change the world, Mm. Um, that shift. Because, you know, if you look at um, social reference theory, reference groups, it says that one of the fastest ways to personal transformation is to change who it is you compare yourself to. So if you... You know, if you're growing up and you take an MBA and you compare yourself to Donald Trump all your life, and then all of a sudden 
you start reading about Nelson Mandela, and Nelson Mandela becomes your mentor, um, your life has changed. And biomimicry is about taking nature as your mentor, as your reference. I think it literally can change uh, how we evaluate, how we create things, but it also ultimately will change how we treat the natural world because you, you know, you don't degrade your mentors. When you ask me sort of the ultimate compelling thing for my work, it's that. I also am very, you know, chop wood, carry water in terms of biomimicry is very pragmatic. I also want to begin to fill the pipeline with sustainable processes. I want to, I want to make uh, business practices, you know, less toxic and using less material and and um, and less energy. And try to find platform solutions that will clean up the, the considerably wrong-headed designs that we've got, you know, to help rewrite the story of stuff is the practical part of biomimicry that I also am compelled to do. Mm. Thank you. If you could change one thing in the world with a snap of your fingers right now, what would you change and why? Wow. Um, Perhaps I would change people's conception of who they are in relation to uh, this age of solutions that we need to be all involved in. I would love to see everybody wake up empowered to the point that they realize they're all designers, that they're part of the redesign of everything on this planet. They're agents of natural selection, essentially, you know, that they through their choices of how to design a life, they decide what what ideas um, make it into the next generation. And we can shift things, but everybody's got to be, you know, part of that of that solution. And that they would know that they are ultimately part of the solution, and they'd pick up some part of it. Brilliant. Thank you. In a recent interview, you said that creating conditions conducive to life is not optional. It's a rite of passage for any organism that manages to fit in over the long haul. So when I read that, I wondered what organism has been around for the longest time and what should we learn from it? Speaking of the long haul. (laughs) The oldest are the blue-greens. They're the the blue-green algae. I mean, they are... 3.8 3.8 billion years old. We're 200,000 years old. Billion versus thousands. 200,000, 3.8 billion. I mean, it, it's just, it's staggering. And they are, um, they are so key right now. We're learning so much from them. When you talk about artificial photosynthesis, what, what we're in now is with the solar cell that works like a leaf, um, that's only part of the equation because what a leaf also, you know, takes sunlight and turns it into fuel, right? Photons into fuel, and and the blue-green bacteria really help us in that in that chemistry part. Um, for instance, if if we are to 
do what a leaf does, which is split water. And and then one of the goals would be to, to have some sort of an energy carrier, which hydrogen it gases. And when a leaf splits water, or when a blue-green splits water, it creates uh, oxygen that we can breathe. And then it also creates these hydrogen protons that you can combine them into a hydrogen gas that you can put in the fuel cell. And then when the sun's not shining, you can have your fuel cell in the basement. But it turns out that fuel cells are really expensive because of the chemistry that goes on at the breathing membranes where they're breathing in hydrogen and they're breathing in uh, oxygen. And, and blue-greens know all about that chemistry. <laughs> so it turns out that the model for one of the most sophisticated machines right now, the fuel cell, is the most ancient organism. I think that's pretty poetically beautiful, actually. Mm, fabulous. And the other question that came to mind to me is, is there a design problem that nature hasn't yet solved? Well, you know, there's a lot of design problems in the world that really biomimicry is not qualified to answer. A lot of them. And uh, they have to do with the social side of things. People always want to say, you know, hey, can we learn from ants or can we learn from bees? And there's nothing really in the natural world that has solved sort of complex social questions about morality and and ethics and and um, we can't look to the natural world for that we are the natural world in that case and so yeah we're living a design challenge that nature has not yet figured out <laughs> which is you know how to live here in a way that that enhances our life both from a physical on a physical plane and, and spiritually enhances our life. We're in the process of figuring out that design challenge mm. right now. And no other species can help us with that. We are our own unique species as they are. We're on our own. <clears throat> so we better use the best of nature's wisdom for the technical questions so that we can focus all our creative right. energy on this social problem because we it's a big That's one. right. <laughs> you know, I, I think that there are certainly models for our economy, you know, um, but in terms of, like, who lives and who dies and morality, that's us. That's cultural. That's cultural evolution. It's a cultural design. A recent article uh, described biomimicry's approach to sustainability as, quote, our products and practices are well adapted to living on this planet. Is there anything else you'd like to say about what sustainability means to you? It really is about fitting in over the long haul. And this idea of well-adapted is really important from a biological standpoint. It's, you know, it's everything that we're trained to think about is, is that, that basically everything you see in the natural world is an artifact, a tool for living. It's a technology. And our technologies are too, you know, they're called cars and planes and computers. And to me, they're, they're natural technologies. The only question is, are they maladapted or well-adapted? And well-adapted means, I love well-adapted because it means nothing on its own. You've got to ask me, well-adapted to what, where, and when? I mean, it's context-dependent, right? So it's always about, does it help you fit into your habitat? 
that's what makes it well adapted. It's well adapted to a place during a particular period of time. It's not a finished product. It's a process. Being well adapted is not a thing. It's an approach to to life. And so organisms are constantly finding home again. Their, Their environments are changing all the time. And their job is to become well adapted again and again and again to fit in today, this hour, this minute. You know, they're constantly readjusting to to find that center. Um, and and so sustainability is also a quest to not to get to somewhere but to live in a way that is a constant accommodation to the realities of your place, you know? What do you believe are the primary blocks to our achieving sustainability? The valuing of the natural world is so important because all the economic uh, pricing signals basically reward you, and, and the corporate form does as well, rewards this entity for short-term depletive, make sure I get it first and um, before anyone else does. And it really rewards this sort of unenlightened, selfish interest. And, you know, our whole body of law um, basically takes good people, even on boards of companies, and says, you know, it's not your fiduciary responsibility to help the earth. It's to help this quarterly report. And as long as those reward systems are in place, we will get the behavior that they design for. <laughs> it's really a design challenge. Now, I look in the natural world and I think, okay, what's the reward structure there? It very quickly comes to what's most important, what's at the heart of everything. And it really is this idea of creating conditions conducive to life. So an organism is successful biologically if its genetic material survives you know into the you know infinite future right that its genetic material somehow carries on continuity of life is success and the way to get continuity of life is to take care of the place that's going to take care of your offspring and so you've got to create in your generation you have to create conditions conducive to life and not just your own offspring's life, because in the natural world, your offspring is completely dependent on the system that you're either following or enhancing. So literally taking care of place, loving place, and taking care of place is the way to get to this ultimate, the ultimate win, which is continuity of life. I mean, what a, what a tremendous thing to gauge success by. Um, you know, so life is not yet at the center of our decision making. Mm. Mm. The imperatives are all around continuity of life. We're not there yet. Brilliant. Thank you. What would you say is distinct about what's needed from leadership at this time in our planet's history? Um, I really think that ultimate goals are, are really more important than, than ultimate goals at this point. I mean, I, I think that, that this idea of what's worth doing has never been more important. 
when I see a, a company, a leadership statement or something that will be number one in revenues by this, you know, it's like, right, um, is that what the world needs right now? You know, I mean, it, it's, <laughs> so leadership right now has to be boldly about um, taking a, a piece of the puzzle and solving it, even if you happen to be in a business, especially if you happen to be in a business. So, for instance, I work with Interface Carpet and the Dream Team. Interface is a, is a very large floor-covering company, $1.3 billion company, that in 1994, Ray Anderson, the CEO, had a revelation um, that they had to do do more than just sell carpet and that they could be an industry leader in in not only redressing, you know, the, the, the sins of, of a very heavy, heavily industrial and nasty, dirty comp, uh, industry, but actually show the way out of that. And, and they, they, they sort of self-authorized themselves to be um, the leader, the piper of sustainable industry. And it changed their, it, it changed what they were about as a company. And nowadays you go to a dream team meeting and you can sit for an entire day for 10 hours and never use the word carpet because they're doing so much more than carpeting. They're reinventing uh, business models and an economic approach to the world. And it's not just about carpet. So yes, carpet needs to be sold in the world, or, you know, you could argue that, but, you know, products need to be sold, but it's the way right now people need to redesign the way that we do trade in the world and, and that we do organizational models of business for some larger purpose, which is to um, to move us um, out of this very, very, very uh, dangerous cul-de-sac that we've gotten ourselves into. Mm. You know, in my scientific community, um, I think we need to drop some of our antiquated ideas about the separation between activism and, and science. I think scientists need to stand up and become active. I think there needs to be a boldness in what it is you're responsible for. You know, you are responsible for speaking the truth, for speaking truth to power. Scientists need to be, and we've been told not to. You know, I've been given enormous opportunities to stand in front of thousands and thousands of people at a time, concert-sized groups of people. And you've got you know, you've got 10 minutes or 20 minutes or half an hour to to say something, and it's not about you. It's about moving the culture towards, uh, you know, it's about growing up, right, and helping the culture grow up. It's about generosity. It's, you know, these are things that I think, I think are are imperative for all of us to be saying out loud right now. And the true, the true leaders, and that are are people who, whether they're in government or academia or civil society or commerce, that they take whatever venue they have and use it to change the world. Mm-hmm. I also think that right now, historically, we have a stranglehold on the problem statement, and we need to really move into the solution statement. Mm-hmm. And I'm speaking from, you know, triple bottom line, environmental, planet, profits, and people, but the time of sort of identifying the problem statement 
and having that be most people's job <laughs> is over. It's over. There's a real need to move groups away from complaint and finger pointing mm-hmm. to being solution seekers mm-hmm. um, and inventors. And that's why I get back to the you know, if I could switch and everybody would feel like they were a designer and they could invent the, the next great way to go. That's where we need to get to, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's a leadership. That's a leadership role. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to On Leading. I am Shauna Steffen, learning about restorative leadership in action from Janine Benyus, the voice of biomimicry. To learn more about how to engage in biomimicry, please go to biomimicry3.8.com or asknature.org. And to learn more about restorative leadership, please subscribe to On Leading on iTunes, and go to restorativeleadership.org.